Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I've been waiting to do this review since fucking day one of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This is my co-host, Rob Olson, who has never, ever been more excited (laughs) for an episode ever. Never. This has never happened. I've never been like, the energy you're going to hear from me tonight is going to just out outweigh anything you've ever heard from me before um the book that we're reviewing tonight is the raw shark texts by stephen hall and now you might think to yourself if you're aware of this book oh they've been talking about this book for five years why are they going to review a book that came out five years ago first of all dude we do throwback reviews and it's been a while and um if you'll remember one of our throwback reviews was livius's choice right it was. We did um, Night in the Lonesome October by Richard Lehman. Richard Lehman, and you love this book, right? And I think yes. this is kind of in the in the in the in the same kind of vein where this book, which was um, um, introduced to me by Livius, so I have to give you the credit for for this book, mm-hmm. is probably the favorite, my favorite book ever. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was reading it, and I, I thought this is your favorite book, but I wasn't um, I wasn't sure if you would actually say favorite book. I definitely knew it was in your top favorite books, and it, as it is in my top some number, I don't know, maybe 10 or something or yeah. whatever. I don't know. I haven't given it much thought, but it did occur to me halfway through that this might be your actually your favorite, favorite book. Yeah, we've talked about it a bunch before. Um, it's The Raw Shark Texts by Stephen Hall. And um, way, way back, if you've been listening to us for a while, episode 16, Before I Go to Sleep, I do this, like, probably 10-minute rant explaining, um, you know, kind of the high points of the book um, in kind of a a shout-out type of thing where we didn't do a review of it, but I just kind of said, hey, this is an awesome book everybody should check out. So um, I went on a little rant about it then, but... We were uh, talking about books we wanted to do, and um, there's a special reason why reviewing the Raw Shark text in 2017 makes sense. It is because the Raw Shark text was originally released in the United Kingdom in 2007, so this is the 10th anniversary of the release of this book. I was wondering, because you had said that, and I thought I saw that somewhere, but when I looked it up on Amazon... you Yeah, in the U.S. it was 2008. 2008. So, yeah. yeah, so I'm guessing it's been nine years, um, roughly, since we read it. I think it was pretty new when I read it, and I'm sure you read it shortly after that. So yep. here it is, our review for something that's 10 years old. Uh, we are even, because of the nature of the book, we're going to try to keep the spoiler free. And if you're a Patreon contributor at any level, of course, you can go on and catch spoiler talk. There will be spoiler talk because Rob is going to try to explain some things to me. He's going <laughs> to mansplain some of this book to me. <laughs> Because even on what I believe to be my third read through, I'm I'm still unclear, and I don't know if Rob's more clear. The, oh, I'm clear. Some, okay, all right. Rob thinks he's clear. I'm saying there's some ambiguity in this book, um, and Rob is clear. But that you'll have to hear him school me over on the alternate, um, <laughs> on the on the unreview, unreview taking place yeah, over exactly. at Patreon.com. So uh, here's yeah. We, if there ever was a time for you to be like, oh, I'm not contributing to Patreon, but maybe I should, this is the episode that you want to start contributing to our Patreon for because the conversation that's going to happen over in the spoiler talk is vastly different than what we're going to hear in the regular review. Um, If there was ever a book that you wanted to hear really, really thoughtful, considered conversation about, 
um, without fear of, of the, the story being spoiled, this is it. So give us your dollar and listen to the goddamn spoiler talk. Rob, would you like to tell them a little bit about uh, about the author? Yeah, Stephen Hall is the author of Raw Shark Text. He is a British writer, um, and he is, as I just kind of said a second ago, the author of the Raw Shark Texts. He is the lead writer on the video game Battlefield 1 and writer on Nike's World Cup short film The Last Game. Um, upcoming from him is uh, his second novel, which is called The End of Endings, I believe, and there's not a specific release date for it yet, but um, I realized, I, I looked on Twitter the other day and I saw that he had tweeted back to someone that he just put the finishing touches on the book and that there were big announcements coming soon. I believe that was from September. Is that right? No, Roughly? January. Like, this is this month. Like, well, oh, no, last holy month. Holy crap. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nice. I'm, uh, I'm even more excited now. Um, are you familiar with any of Stephen Hall's other work? Um, I know he did something for the Doctor Who series, right? Yeah, I think he did a, a radio um, drama for them, where yeah. he wrote a radio drama. And I think it's called A Death in the Family. I don't have notes in front of me on it. Um, even being a Doctor Who fan, I have never gone into any of the comic books or the audio drama or anything. I'm, I'm a fan of the TV show, um, which is really cool. But I didn't realize until, um, <laughs> I don't know, a few days ago that I'm, I'm a little familiar with something else he did, which is Battlefield 1, a video yeah. game that I have played very recently and have not played through um, all the way because um, it's just not really my style. But I have been playing it, so I'm, I'm a little familiar with some some more story from him. Yeah, my understanding is he's gaining some acclaim from that. Like He's probably building his name significantly more from Battlefield 1 than he has as an author. Um, hopefully that will just give him more exposure. Um, for his other other works as well, um, but here is is to the the depth of how much I'm aware of his um his his writing contributions to the world. Last night, the night before we're recording this, on um, Abe Books, A B E Books, if you're familiar with that, I ordered an a, an issue of uh, a magazine called Granta, or Granta, which is a British magazine, uh, which contains a story by uh, Stephen Hall called The End of Endings, which I believe is a chapter or at least a, a an excerpt from his upcoming book. Ooh. Yeah. Very nice. I am looking forward to reading that over your shoulder in a coffee shop somewhere. <laughs> as long as the right romantic music is playing in the background, absolutely. Oh, God, do you remember? So the last time <laughs> we went to get coffee, it's a little off there. Remember the weird eclectic music at Dunkin' Donuts? <laughs> yeah, what was that one... It was by like the waitresses or something like that, like some weird song, and you recognized it. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is it was the weirdest mix. Like we were pretty sure that wasn't authorized, like Dunkin' Donuts radio, but that's that's where we're gonna go. It was like the worst serious channel ever, or something. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Here is the synopsis <laughs> for the book. In the event that you have missed this masterpiece, spoiler on the review. This masterpiece. Eric Sanderson wakes up in a house he doesn't recognize, unable to remember anything of his life. All he has left are his diary entries recalling Cleo, a perfect love who died under mysterious circumstances, and a house that may contain the secrets to Eric's prior life. But there may be more to this story, or it may be a different story altogether. With the help of allies found on the fringes of society, Eric embarks on an edge-of-your-seat journey to uncover the truth about himself and to escape the predatory forces that threaten to consume him. 
Moving with the pace of a superb thriller, the raw shark text has sparked the imaginations of readers around the world and is one of the most talked about novels in years. That last part was all about me because Rob won't shut up about it, I think is what they were. It's like a subtle kind of dig at me, but um, (laughs) I think it was very personally directed at me. Um, to start talking about the book, it's really what the synopsis says. We are introduced to the book with, um, Eric Sanderson, the protagonist for this book, um, waking up and not understanding what's going on, not having no idea what's going on at all. Um, and being kind of reintroduced his life through, um, hints that were left behind by his, his, the previous incarnation of Eric Sanderson, which comes to be referred to as the first Eric Sanderson. So um, the kind of first thing he experiences finding, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, finding notes and, and things left behind by the first Eric Sanderson in the event that he woke up not remembering anything. He has some clues about what he needs to do to kind of get a grip of what's going on in his life which leads him to a therapist named Dr. Randall. Dr. Randall has uh, treated Eric previously and is very familiar with um, the, the number of times, because it's happened a few times, that he has lost his memory. So she is able to at least clue him in um, on, on some facts about his life and, you know, and, and a little bit about what is a very rare condition that she believes um, that, that he has. Um, So she gives him his first kind of nudge in the right direction on how to handle things. And and she actually instructs him if there is any communication from the previous um, Eric Sanderson, not to read it at all, to just uh, uh, discount anything um, that his former self personality, whatever. I don't, I don't even know what to say at this point about it. His, his previous Rob, what's the word his I'm looking former, for? It's this. like his former life, basically. Yeah, yeah, like like messages that might be sent um, to him. Um, and then we spend, you know, a good amount of time with Eric kind of, you know, just kind of trying to figure out what's going on and, and trying to go about daily life. But also, um, if he's going to choose to follow the breadcrumbs that were left for him by his prior consciousness. Yeah, a couple thoughts about that. One of the things that at the very beginning of the book is is emphasized in a way that's subtle, but I thought very powerful, is the fact that, and this is going to be, I'm fanboying all over this book, so it's going to sound like I just like, you know, am worshiping worshiping at the at the feet of this book, and it's because I really appreciate a lot of things that happen. But in the very beginning, um, in the session with Doctor Randall, um, Eric makes it clear, and obviously this is unreliable because he's the person that has no memory. That it doesn't feel like he forgot something. It just feels like some there's nothing there. Which was like kind of your first clue that like this may go in a direction that's different than your typical like dissociative fugue kind of state, which is what Dr. Randall has been um, you know, uh diagnosing this as. Can we do a little side note on the Dr. Randall thing really quick, Livius? And I don't sure. know if this yes. I don't know if you know about this or not. Um back in the back in the day. We're going to take this kind of in the way back machine. Um, Brayton Cameron, who does Skip Papersley, he did Malik Tambali. He's been kind of a, a, a big contributor to the podcast, wrote a story 
uh, one of the like my favorite things I've ever read in my entire life, and um, and one of the things that like I wish that he had expanded on, um, where there was a guy visiting his therapist, and the conversation that takes place is um, he's suicidal, but he won't kill himself until he writes the perfect suicide note. Do you remember this at all? This sounds um, this sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. So this whole story. It's just like I don't know. I just thought, I love the idea of like a person who can't kill themselves until they get the suicide note right because there's such like reality but like absurdity involved. And I was just like, you know, it's just amazing. But um, uh, he wrote this story with um, in mind with Doctor Randall. So his character in his story was visiting Doctor Randall to talk about the fact that he couldn't write the best the best suicide note. That's interesting. You know that that makes for an interesting kind of. Um... Like a story thread almost is like that there's a psychiatrist that gets all of the weird patients. I mean, I guess psychiatrists <laughs> get weird. Well, I mean, they get people yeah, yeah. With, with problems, right? But you could almost write something on a psychiatrist that for some reason attracts like the uh, most outlandish. Right. The you know, weirdest cases. Stuff. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, uh, there's, we're going to go, you know, all of 30% into this book, I think, before we stop talking about actual storyline. But so Eric, um, does for, for his own, you know, takes Dr. Randall's advice and, and in his mind thinks, you know, maybe it's best that he does leave this, this stuff alone. Um, but then there's an incident that occurs, um, that leads him to believe that there's something much, much larger at play than, Something happened to him and, and there's a, you know, this fugue state. So he, he very quickly tries to catch up on months of communication that he's received at this point from his previous self. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think this is spoiler enough to really not talk about it, but essentially at some point he receives a package, um, that he opens up, not realizing that it's part of this whole kind of correspondence from, um, his, his former self and in, watching it and understanding what it means kind of like is the catalyst for something like what Livius was saying, the thing to happen where like suddenly he's in a really bad place and he doesn't know what to do. And that's what causes him to go back and, and, and read through basically. I feel like it was maybe like six or nine months worth of correspondence, which leads up to like, it was over 200 different like letters that he received from his, his earlier self kind of explaining, hey, this is what's going on, and this is um, this is how you, what you need to do in order to kind of get through this situation. So um, it's revealed very early on, and so this is not really a spoiler that um, the, the thing that's happening is he's been, <laughs> which we discover as the story goes on, he's being pursued by a shark. But it's not a shark, it's a conceptual shark. And the conceptual shark, once he gets a taste for your your memories, um, will pursue you until there's nothing left to to consume. So this conceptual shark, once you know, like it, it feeds on memories and it feeds on like your 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 thoughts and your brain and everything, and and it, it's not satisfied until it's kind of consumed all of you. So it's kind of singular in its um. Uh, in its need to consume like all of your your brain until you're just basically this empty vessel. Yeah, and I know that probably sounds crazy if um, you're not familiar with the book. And, and even when I first read, I thought, oh, this is interesting. But as I was reading, I was like, yeah, this seems a little nutty too. You know what I mean? But it 
really comes down to this beautiful world building that Stephen Hall does, because not only as Rob said, does a shark does the shark try to eat all of your memories and all of your your being, your your inner being, your personality, your spirit, whatever you want to call it, but it. <laughs> It has a lot to do with communication between people and and without spoiling too much words and writing and conversations and and whatever. So it really exists in this kind of metaphysical world that I guess we don't think about. But if you ever, you know, I just watched the movie Arrival. Um, Are you you familiar with it? I haven't watched it, but I know mm -hmm. it's been getting such critical acclaim. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with like how do you communicate with somebody where you have there's no common thread, you know, on on um, language and stuff. But the way we communicate with people, there is there is some things to be said, you know, and that's you know the pen is mightier than the sword, you know, words as weapons and that type of thing. All of that kind of comes into play in a way with how you can um, what what else these um, and and we'll get into conceptual fish, I'm sure, as as a as a as a whole <laughs> genre of of animal. Um, but, you know, what what they can feed on and stuff. And it's basically the interaction between people. And it has a lot to do with how powerful um, and, and or dangerous that that can be. So there's there's some really fascinating depth to it's not just like ghost shark eats your memories because that sounds fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah, that there's a lot more at play than than that. And and honestly, like very early in the story, the unpalatableness I just made up a word, but you understand what I'm saying? Like the fact that it's difficult to palate, like, you know, it's not palatable. Like the idea of, of conceptual, um, um, fish or beings or whatever it is, is actually handled in, in like probably one of the most elegant moments in the entire book. Um, and this has actually been later on, um, adapted and read out loud by Tilda Swinton, um, on, on like a video on YouTube. Um, he receives uh, Eric Sanderson re- receives a letter from what's called the first Eric Sanderson, and he's the second Eric Sanderson. Um, receives like a correspondence from the first Eric Sanderson um, that basically says like you know it starts out with like you know imagine you're in a boat on a lake, and um, you know and it kind of explains just the situation you're experiencing in this boat on a lake where you kind of have your hand hanging over the edge of the boat, and your fingers are maybe dipping into the water a little bit, and it's explaining what you feel about the water and then it kind of zooms out and it's like, all right, so that's the lake that was in my mind. But by describing it to you, it's now in your mind. And like, then it kind of goes into exploring the idea of like this idea that's in my mind because I told it to you now exists in your mind. And so like, that's the connection. And it was such an elegant and beautiful way of just kind of like creating the idea of like, there are all these connections that are happening all the time in the world Livius and I doing a podcast, there's a strong connection here. So if we were to be hunted by a conceptual fish and it was in like where the town where Livius lives, maybe the fact that we're connected by the internet would make it would make me vulnerable because we have this kind of like digital connection. So he really early on in the in the in the book kind of gets a gets he takes care of the whole like it's difficult to understand what a conceptual fish is because he gives you this beautiful kind of idea in a very vivid visual of like what that really means. I think, uh, I think we've done a good job teasing the whole conceptual fish thing. Yeah. (laughs) Suffice it to say that you learn a little bit more about other types of conceptual fish in this book, but really 
um, this story is um, if you're gonna put if you're gonna try to make it a character based story is the Ludovician, yeah, which is the conceptual shark versus Eric Sanderson and Eric Sanderson's quest to um, I don't want to say defeat. I, I, I think that his quest is to not be pursued anymore um, by the shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we didn't mention and it is mentioned right in the synopsis is that he's also dealing with um, the loss of a loved one. So he learns from Dr. Randall that his girlfriend Cleo died three years prior to his this particular yeah. version of Eric Sanderson, um, you know, awakening to, to not have any memories. So uh, even though he doesn't know Cleo, he he does learn of Cleo through um, some of the letters that are sent to him by by the first Eric Sanderson. And he gets to. Um, you know, like a diary style uh, description of their relationship, so to speak, which mostly most of the diary and I think pretty much all the diary entries take place on uh, is it Naxos, I think is the name of the Greek yes, island yes. that they had vacationed on um, what seems to be prior uh, prior to her death. <laughs> I like how we're unsure about that, because there's a lot of stuff that like. In this book, just by the the by virtue of the fact that it's so confusing, you're really not 100 percent sure of everything that goes on. But like, yeah, that's that's so so far we've talked about Eric Sanderson woke up understanding that he doesn't know anything about his past. Um, we know that a previous like iteration of himself is trying to help him through this. We know he's being uh, you know pursued by a conceptual shark, and we know that he lost someone who was very close to him. So. This is all the build-up to really kind of the thrust of the of the entire story, which is Eric, um, with help from his previous, you know, the first Eric Sanderson, um, needs to find a specific person um, whose name is Dr. Trey Fedoris. Fedoris? Fedoris? I'm going to say Fedoris. Um, who is the guy who knows how to help Eric, um, first of all, get away from this shark situation, but also knows him from the past. So this Dr. Trey guy knows is kind of the answer to all of his, his unanswered questions. And so he sets out based on, um, the path, uh, the, the first Eric Sanderson went through, um, he follows this path again to try and find this doctor in order to help him, uh, first of all, escape this Ludovician, but also to um, understand what happened to get him to this point where he's this kind of empty shell where he doesn't have any of his memories or, or anything like that. And on this quest, he meets Scout, who is, um, you know, arguably the the other protagonist in this. Uh, and she is, I don't know. I don't know what to say about <laughs> Scout. She may She's or a may manic not pixie be. dream girl. Yeah. Yeah, she is definitely a manic pixie dream girl, but she is also uh, maybe part of the um, Unspace Exploration Committee. So we've we've already talked about this whole world that's built up, but that's only a part <laughs> of what um, Eric discovers is is at large in this world. So there is a the concept of Unspace, which I don't know how important it is. But there, there is a bigger world at large, and and I don't know how much we want to talk about because again, like great books, it's like we want to share the great stuff with you, but so much of it, it's it's important to kind of discover on your own too. Yeah, I agree. Um, in the grand scheme of things, and this is honestly, and I'm going to kind of zoom out a little bit for this particular thought. So much of this book is 
fucking excellent based on the things that it does not explore. Like, it introduces an idea, and it only uses it as much as it needs to, and there's so much more that you know is, like, is part of this thought that you're never going to fucking hear. And that's why it makes it so awesome. And Unspace is one of the ideas. Like, the idea of Unspace is, like, basically, like, Unspace is the places that people do not occupy. They're kind of the forgotten. Like, they're, they're places that exist in the world, but they're just kind of, like, you know, empty, forgotten, unnecessary spaces. So, um, you know, uh, tunnels that take you from point A to point B or or just, like, you know... The, the gaps in between the walls or whatever it happens to be, this is all considered unspace. But um, for people who are trying to do stuff like hide from like conceptual sharks, things like this are very important to survival. And so it's a concept that's introduced that is so fundamental to a very small part of the book. <laughs> but it's just vastly uh, entertaining and, and interesting uh, to think about. But Livius is right. Like, grand scheme of the book, I could never introduce the idea of unspace, and you would still understand why the book is what it is. Um, but it's one of those things that's super fascinating. Yeah, and part of that fascination comes in this book, I was trying to explain this book to somebody, and I was like, well, it's kind of sci-fi, maybe a little fantasy, but the beauty of it is, is that there's this whole world created that's in the world we're in. Right. Versus the the sci-fi it takes place on a different planet or the fantasy of it's a undis the Game of Thrones. Like we don't know, is that in the past? Is that supposed to be Earth? Is that the future? Like there are some some arguments in, in either direction about what it is. This is your straight up ten years ago England with this other world kind of being built around it where there's creatures that you can't see because you have not um fallen into their their path. And unspace, which is all around you. I, you know, I read this, you know, again nine, ten years ago, and then um, for a period of time, I worked at a shopping mall, a, a large shopping mall in Illinois, and I could never walk. So there was uh, to get from where I worked to the food court. Um, I had discovered, or someone showed me, that there was a pathway, which were these hallways that were yeah. for employees only. And, you know, I hardly ever ran into anybody in those because that's like where the guy who worked at like the little store would have to take his trash like down a hallway. Right. You know, out to a dumpster and I unspace. It's totally unspace. Yep. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? I, I know the hundreds... I've been the exact same kind of places and I know exactly yep. what you're talking yep. about. The, the hundreds of people on the other side of the wall. But you're completely isolated in this this kind of, you know, I don't want to say creepy, but this, you know, kind of dimmer lit, quiet doorways everywhere and you're not really yeah. sure where all of them go kind of situation yeah it's just like unpolished like unfinished raw like just area yeah um are we cool with unspace because i want to talk about something else yes so in addition to the concept of unspace and this is all like like olivia said world building but it's very important to just understanding how the mechanics and the physics of like this conceptual world works there's also specific safety measures and things that, that our protagonist and his, you know, cohorts that he meets along the way use to keep themselves safe. So one of the first things that he's introduced to before he even leaves on his quest to find the doctor is, um, I can't remember the exact name, but it's like a, it's, it's, it's called like a non-divergent loop. And the idea is like, he's got four different like dictaphones. I'm assuming that's basically like a cassette player kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That he sets up, um, 
in like the corners of the room, like basically um, surrounding the area that he wants to be safe inside of. And God, this is just so interesting the way that he put the th- put this together. Each cassette player is playing just random, normal, everyday sounds from somebody's life, and they're kind of uh, creating this barrier of of uh, people's lives that have nothing to do with the person inside, and it confuses these conceptual fish that are trying to find someone. So, like, as long as he's inside this non-divergent loop. He can't be found by this shark that's trying to, you know, consume all his memories. But the way that it works is is practically impossible. So this is really fascinating. You send four tape players to um, one person. And they're supposed to record themselves on the first tape player. And then send all four to the next person who records on the second tape player. And then sends to the third and then the fourth like that. But they can't know each other at all. So it has to be completely random and unconnected. So like the fact that that he even has these four tapes to to play is is a is a near impossibility because who would go along with that kind of thing? Um but this Somebody is Somebody's getting paid. Listen, you would totally <laughs> do that if I gave you like 75 bucks. Yeah, and you're like just record 3 hours of you walking around experiencing your daily life. Yep. 100% I would. Um but it's this type of security measure which seems insane to us and like completely irrelevant. That actually protects him, and then there's other stuff like, like a little grenade that someone uses at one point, which is like, um, just like a bundled together piece of you know bunches of different pieces of paper with information on them or something like that. So like these are the types of things that like sound insane, but these are the things that protect you from these conceptual fish and things like that. So um, kind of a neat little approach to like this is war and this is survival, but it's on a plane that no one's ever considered before. And I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah. And super, super clever. I mean, even the, the explanation for why these things work is, um, is done incredibly well. And, and how do I say this? I'm not surprised that Stephen Hall has not put out another novel. And, and, and here's why, because <laughs> if the level of thought that has to go into something like the raw shark text, this is clearly not somebody who um, is content with putting the work together where you can put out a book every year because not it's much, far, much yeah. deeper. It's, it's Mark Danielewski. Right. I, I mean, when you think about it, you know, something so big and interesting and, and world building and there's all this stuff that you just can't, nobody can crank one out every, you know, 12 months. Um, so certainly with Danielewski and with Stephen Hall, we're seeing gaps that are, significant between book releases now i'm not taking anything away from from writing a a doctor who radio drama or um, battlefield one but you know your hand at battlefield one takes place during world war one so you have to write a set of stories that take place within those parameters um no supernatural anything i don't know if you're familiar with the the game franchise at all but it's 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 dirty nasty up close war so you know the storylines in there and i'm not quoting from the game or anything like that but it's hey we have to make it across these lines but you have a a tank driver who's a little afraid or something you know it's all very easy to i don't want to say easy to write because i don't write stuff so but you get what i'm saying it it all within established parameters doctor who crazy sci-fi but you've got your characters you kind of have some rules you have to work with the Um, world world is already built yeah yep Creating something like this and having it be so intricate and so clever and so interesting 
is not a is not a fast process, or at least I can't imagine that for anybody this would be a fast process. I, I want to touch on one other thing, um, and again, without going into too much, there is a a, a villain of sorts mm-hmm. that's super fascinating. That that so all the things we've said about how clever this world building was, there's this whole other element that's I'm going to say unrelated to to what we've talked about that's equally as big and interesting. So there, I'm sure during spoiler talk, there'll probably be a lot of talk about that particular character. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, you've got a guy who's created all of this and then has created a whole nother. So you've got, you've got conceptual fish, which is fascinating. You've got the unspace exploration committee, which is fascinating. You've got this other character, which is fascinating. This is the kind of stuff that three novels are made of. And like Rob said, there's only ever enough of any of it for it to be important to the story without really exploring it anywhere. E- each one of these could have had their own 450-page book. Am I, am, I, am I wrong? Oh, yeah, without question. If this was George R.R. R. Martin, like, you know, it would be seven mm-hmm. seasons into the HBO series by now. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and like six and, and books deep. Mm-hmm. And, but that's you, you said that, and I know you kind of just said it in jest, but an interesting parallel there because there you have there's a world where dragons used to exist and maybe they're coming back and you've got these kind of winter zombies and you've got, you know, and it's, it's not just, you know, these two clans fighting for control. There are different big elements that are very different from some of the other ones. And they're all coming together, you know, over a common cause. And that's really what's happening here in the raw shark text. Yeah. And, and so this character, the the big character that like, obviously we, we find so fascinating, what we're not talking about is introduced pretty well into the book. And I think that's why we're not going to talk about it, but there's another concept that uh, is also introduced pretty well into the book and, and it's better to just kind of experience it on your own, but I will tease a little bit about it. And there was like a, a group of people called the Shotai Mu. Um, and the whole idea of this is just like, it ties so greatly into what um, Eric Sanderson is learning in order to, to survive in a world that he didn't know even existed going back centuries um, in a way that like the easiest way I could personify this is that it's basically like there's this group of people whose teachings and understandings are like the embodiment of the idea that the pen is mightier than the sword. But going back centuries to like ancient like Jap- Japan, I believe, um, and 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 so you find this rich history, and it's nothing that ever needed to be introduced, and it's so fascinating. But again, it only occupies the exact amount of space it needs in order to be interesting without taking away from the overall story. So yeah, I mean, just at every turn, this man is just blowing my mind. I uh, I agree wholeheartedly with you um, on on every point. Uh, the Shotai move fascinating. How it ties into the story is great. But yeah, you're right. It didn't need to be there. Didn't need to, but it it no. was it mm-hmm. was like it, there's there's like I think that a good writer can do more with a story he doesn't tell he or she doesn't tell than like with a story that they actually tell. And Stephen Hall does so much of this like. I will tease you with like the tip of this particular iceberg that is in in the in the context of this book is 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 a more more like a plot device but I created it in a way where you know 
that there is so much under the surface that you you believe in it more, but you don't have to hear all of it. And I feel like that's what he does so great with this book is like he creates this massive universe by only talking about the things that just matter for the story. And that's really difficult to do. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm of the same belief, and you know I feel very strongly about this book, like you do. Yeah. But God damn it, I mean, he really could have cranked out a book about the Showtime movie, oh, God, about easily. this villain, and about you know what I mean. And and we yeah. would be salivating every two years or, or whatever to get the next installment that that expands on those stories. So I guess it remains to be seen if his second book, um, or how strongly it ties in. Not if. I know it's going to, but how strongly yeah. it ties into any of the things that we talked about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we have to kind of leave the plot there um, w- because anything else we talk about is going to spoil it, right? Yes. Now, I do want to say <laughs> while we've been talking with all the questions and stuff, I-, I know that it would be amazing to have Stephen Hall on. And, and who knows? I-, I definitely tell you, we're going to reach out if if and when his new work comes out. But I almost feel like I would just ask like the dumbest questions. He doesn't want to answer. Like just everything we talked about, I, I have questions and I'd want to ask, and you know how I am. Cause I'd, I'd totally ask. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so there's a characteristic <laughs> that you have Livius that um, we kind of differ on because, but I don't know if I would differ on in, in, in this particular, in the, in the, in the example of this book, because you believe that deep down somewhere in the author's mind, the whole world is, is defined and it makes sense. Like there is an entire world of canon in that author's mind. Whereas I take the more casual approach of like, hey, they sometimes leave something up to the reader. You know that like all the answers lie within Stephen Hall's head. <laughs> so like I feel like you would maybe interrogate him about what did this mean? Whereas I'd be like, oh, I would just be fanboying all over him. Yeah, and and but that's yeah. Sometimes I just, hmm. you know, and, and I know I know that we're we're really going back to 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 one particular book here, where I just want him to say if he knew. Like I just yeah. wanted Josh Mallerman. I didn't want him to tell me. <laughs> all I wanted was an admission that he knew. And, and you, but I, you know, when you create it, you all, I don't know. I, I'm not in anybody's head. Not, I'm not a writer, but I would have to imagine that, that if I had whatever the, the question that would come up here, that in my mind, I've in the backstory I've created, I know exactly how much influence somebody has had, or if there's a question left on the table that I've determined an answer because I created the story just because I don't want to share that answer. Doesn't mean that in my mind I don't know that one way or the other. Yeah, I, I know you don't have to because it's a story you made up, and and it, you could leave it totally ambiguous in your own head. But I would think that as a world creator, you know that answer. You've answered <laughs> the question for yourself. See, now this is where it gets interesting because in my mind I'd be thinking like maybe their answer is better than mine. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, and so. that's quite possible. Or sometimes not as interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. I and mean, it could go the other way. Uh, other things we want to mention. We talked a lot about Unspace. Let's talk about a little bit about Unchapters. So, uh, yeah, this is cool. This is very <laughs> cool, except for the fact that, um, to my understanding... All right, let's backtrack a little bit. There, uh, Stephen Hall had a website which had a forum on it that was super, super active for four or five years after the release of the book. Yep. 
Um, at which point I think, you know, no new discoveries and stuff. And, you know, like anything else, interest wanes a little bit and, and people moved on and, and stopped obsessing over this book, except for Rob, stopped ex- obsessing over yep. this book. Um, there are unchapters. So unchapters are things that didn't, uh, weren't in the book. That's why they're called unchapters, um, but are available from my understanding. Uh, in some places, some of them very accessible, some of them not. So, Rob, I think you've done a little more research on this than I have, so correct me if I'm wrong, and, and I'm just going to throw out weird stuff, which might not be true. Rob sent me an unchapter, and the reason I mentioned the website is there is a, there's a collection there where people have posted what they have found. So one of the unchapters appears only in an edition, a UK edition of the book. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So that's not accessible to anybody in the United States. Of course, someone found it and uploaded it onto the website, which I'm assuming Stephen Hall's website. So it's okay with him that people share when they find them. My understanding is some of them exist only in the real world, a little bit like the trail that Eric Sanderson followed, like maybe under a park bench under a rock somewhere. So um, to kind of put this in perspective, there are 36 chapters in the actual book, The Raw Shark Texts. And um, author Stephen Hall has been on record saying that there are 36 corresponding what's called unchapters um, in the same kind of vein of, of um, uh, the unspace that we talked about earlier. These are legitimate chapters to the book. So they're not like, you know, deleted scenes or, or like, you know, part of a director's cut or something. These are things that are integral to the story, um, but they exist separate from the book itself. So the beautiful thing about that is you can read the book and appreciate it as it is. If you read these unchapters, you just get more information and more insight into what's been going on in the story from, you know, the very beginning up until like the end of the book. So um, not all unchapters have been identified and located. The idea was that as time went on, more and more would be revealed. But like Livia said, some of them are only located in physical locations. So as... um, the second Eric Sanderson traveled across England to find Dr. Trey Fedoris, he would locate things that were like pasted up under a, a, a bench, you know, at the bus station or, you know, like it looked like graffiti, but it was like scribbled writing and stuff. So some of the unchapters actually existed physically in the world. Others existed in specific editions of books. Others existed only online. There was a, a big campaign that took place to emphasize the fact that this book is 10 years old on MySpace (laughs) with like different (laughs) MySpace accounts and stuff like that. So like, um, it was kind of, eh, I don't know. It was, it was almost like a scavenger hunt. So like the people who were really, really rabid about this book went out and they located a lot of this stuff and they then made it available online. So, um, after reading the book or as I was reading the book, I kind of, found as many resources as I could through Stephen Hall's website and stuff. Um, got one of the unchapters, which I believe is the second unchapter or the first one, called the Aquarium Fragment, which is um, kind of like this the, the explanation of like where everything went wrong. Um, but then there's other stuff too. There's like um, excerpts from a book called like the Encyclopedia of Unusual Fish, where it just, like, uh, we talked about the Ludovician and everything like that. 
that's one conceptual fish, but then there's others as well. And so there's these entries for like different weird piranhas and lampreys and all this other stuff. So like there is, is, is a lot of content out there that's just, you know, considered these unchapters, but, um, the majority of the unchapters, at least online have not been chronicled yet. So I'm sure a lot of it is lost to the ages, but the stuff that you do find and, and you can read does add to the story um, without being considered like a deleted scene or something extra or something like that. I seem to remember from maybe my second reading of the book um, that there was also a YouTube video that was another light bulb fragment. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, that probably doesn't make sense to anybody, but it's actually a, you know, kind of Morse coded light bulb communication and it, it mirrors um, something that Eric receives um, in the actual book. And I remember trying to figure that out and giving up like 15 minutes in. I was like, fuck yeah. this. Well, that's because, <laughs> you know, some like fanboy somewhere else figured it out and, and translated it for you. So, um, yeah. So, but yeah, and that's, I guess, the danger of doing anything in the physical world is that, you know, I, and again, I don't know how this is, but I, I keep going back to the, you know, it's it's tucked behind a book in a library somewhere or, you know, under a park bench that someone saw it and said, oh, this is kind of neat and took it home. And it's in somebody's shoebox that has no idea yep. that it's part of anything important to anybody other than maybe the person who, uh, you know, who wrote it or created it or, or whatever. So, yeah. So, but I, I think that kind of ties into the overall kind of mythology is like there are things that are just kind of out there and lost to the ages it's even kind of part of the book so it, it all fits thematically um just another kind of level of creativity that you don't see in your in your average book even the book s which we reviewed uh, a couple of years back now with all of the you know um marginalia and all the, like the little things that were stuffed in there there was so much effort that went into making those things as authentic as possible. Um, but still, it was like a kind of a manufactured thing. Whereas this was like real. Like things showed up only on this website or only in this like park that you could find or something like that. So there was there's more of an authenticity to it. The sucky thing is they're not like on display in a you know, museum somewhere where you can see it forever. It's like if you got there when you could, you saw it and otherwise you're out of luck. So... Um, kind of interesting, but I think it kind of plays into the all overall like uneasy mythology of of the book, and it just worked really well. For me, the the beautiful part of that, as you say, you know, and, and yes, it does definitely play in the mythology of the book. But it's what I said before: a world is created in our world using you know my the weird way to get to lunch when when I worked at the mall. <laughs> yep. And then the fact that maybe there's something scribbled on the side of a building that's important in my yeah. world because it's out in reality, you know, versus creating a fantasy book that takes place on a, a fictional planet or in a fictional time being that, you know, a very generic time. It's a very today thing. Um, and I, I would imagine those things, and again, I'm not sure what Stephen Hall's reach was, but I imagine those things are in the UK somewhere where the story takes place and not in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. But it, interesting to know that they're out there again, much like unspace is out there in our real world. So are these, these unchapters. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm done talking about this book from a non-spoiler standpoint. I don't know about you. <laughs> Yeah, I think we have to jump over for our Patreon contributors. I almost said computers. Uh, we don't have any Patreon computers, do we? 
Not it's yet. All contributors. But yeah. If time. more if more people if more people contribute, <laughs> maybe I'll get a MacBook. Oh, I can't wait for that. Um, if you're a contributor to Patreon, um, there will be spoiler talk for this book, in which I feel like I'm going to be explaining a lot of things to Livius, but also like just kind of. Um, drooling over how well the story was told. So join us over on Patreon. If you are not a Patreon contributor, now is a great time to get started. Um, if you are stubborn and don't want to give us money, um, just wait for an awkward transition. That's going to happen any second now. All right, so you may have joined us over at their spoiler talk. You may have not. Um, but we are back from kind of spoiling the hell out of the story. And um, it, for you, it's been a matter of seconds. For us, it's been close to an hour now. <laughs> we've been talking over there so um we're back and we're going to do a quick wrap up and then we're going to have a couple other things we're going to talk about um you know what what can you say about this book it's uh it's fascinating i mean if somebody wants a lesson in world building um this is it i mean this is a guy who took our current world um added things and subtracted things and created new unspaces that have always been there i mean it's just fascinating um, cleverly told through the defenses and the the um, offensive measures that, that that you can take in the situation. I mean, it's really hard to find fault with uh, with this book. Um, over at Spoiler Talk, if you if you do go over and listen to that, um, maybe a couple of things, and, and maybe maybe I came to the conclusion that sometimes uh, you're just not supposed like it's not fair to scrutinize this hard on anybody's work and i don't think it was Stephen <laughs> hall's intention for people to read a book three times and then have a two hour long discussion um uh, about it um it's easily one of my five favorite books um ever written and that's out of a pretty substantial substantial bunch uh definitely looking forward to to more from uh from Stephen hall i mean the guy set the bar so high for himself so i, I kind of feel bad for him this is like five Point five stars or whatever I can give it that's more than the average five star review. Wow, we're breaking. I, I get the feeling I'm going to do the same thing. Um, everybody knows this is pretty much my favorite book ever. Um, there's, I'm like getting a tattoo away from uh, you know just complete fanboyism with this book. So you know that I'm going to give it a huge rating. Uh, some of the things that I want to point out, Livius, um, in his wrap-up, made me realize, um, talking about Unspace and stuff like that, that Stephen Hall doesn't build a world at all, which is insane. What he does is he offers alternative perspectives that no one's ever seen before. Everything is solidly grounded in reality, but just seen from a different kind of prism or perspective or thought about in a different way. So all the world he builds is just like um, going back to when we were talking and when I was explaining the you're in a boat on a lake and you're in your hand. That's the whole thing. That's all he ever does is he gives you he plants a thought in your head and that thought grows. And that's the entire book. And it's fucking fantastic. Livius and I, I want to say maybe 10 episodes back, we're talking about or sometime in the last year or so, we were talking about how. We read a lot of books and we we appreciate a lot of books and every now and then some an example of writing comes along that makes you realize how good writing can be and the example that we gave without talking about it was Craig Clevenger gave us um, some stuff to read recently and um, it had been a long time since I'd read Contortionist Handbook or Dermaphoria um, but we've re- we've read tons of books all the time and then I read this chapter he sends us and 
it's like this is a is a true craftsman and i think that stephen hall kind of fits in that category too where like so much intention and thought and care went into the way that the book was created that it just takes it to a level that most people never reach you can be a good storyteller you can be a proficient writer but it's difficult to be a proficient skilled writer that also is a good storyteller and i think that Craig Clevenger is definitely an example of that, and Stephen Hall is as well. Um, I mean, everything about this book continues to blow my mind over the course of like a decade and multiple readings. I'm just always kind of just caught by the uniqueness and like how special it is. And all of the amazing, incredible things that we've talked about don't matter because it boils down to the fact that it's a love story, and that is so obvious and so like hugely. Um, advertise it's all about love the only thing that matters in this book is the fact that Eric lost Cleo and he can't cope with that and everything that happens in this book is because he can't get past the thought that Cleo doesn't exist anymore and um, you can't ask for more than that in a book so I'm oblivious this is gonna <laughs> I'm going five and a half stars on this we're gonna go up we're gonna break we're breaking the ceiling of, of the one to five star barrier because that's what this book deserves would it surprise you if I told you that there were a good number of one-star reviews on Amazon for this book? <laughs> this would be probably the first time in history where I would actually find someone and attack them for their beliefs. I'm not even going to read them because I know this has gone on for, for a long time, but you should read some of the one-star reviews. They're, uh... <laughs> actually, an interesting anecdote, because I care about this book so much, I was someone I work with was asking me what book they should read, and so I brought them in a copy of the Raw Shark Texts. And like in the next week, they give it back, and they're like, "Yeah, I got about fifty pages in. And it was just too weird for me." <laughs> oh my god! And I was like, "Yeah, well, um, you told me to watch Game of Thrones, and it sucks." <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read one line. Holy shit! This is beyond me. The version I purchased is more is the more expensive, newer version, which for some reason I thought would be better. Oh my god! At any rate, that's an unperson right there. Oh, Stephen Hall, um, definitely looking forward to it. And I know we're, we're going to try to get him on. We'll see what we can do. But um, definitely somebody that would be interesting to talk to. But I think that we'd have to, Rob would have to have the ability to mute me. And I'd have to work from a script. <laughs> Dude, I would be the one that's in control in this situation. You'd, you'd have to be because I'd be like, you know what I would be like. I know what you'd be like. Uh, Livius, uh, if, if for the people that have been listening for like the last five years who don't realize it yet, Livius is the one that actually has a heart of the two of us. It just never shows. That's correct. So it's none of your damn business if I have a heart. So talking about authors that are going to be celebrities and difficult to get on the podcast, um, I think we have a new addition to that list. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, yeah. we've already talked to this person. <laughs> yeah. Talking. Speaking of hearts. Oh, look at you. Um, Rob Hart's uh, book, James Patterson Bookshot, now has a release date of uh, October 3rd. So I know what we're going to be doing um, in October. Oh, that's during during Horror Month. That's fine. I mean, Mm. we... We make exceptions for for specific people, and I think that Rob Hart doing a James Patterson book, um, that that could even break Lazy Summer of Podcasting. Yeah, except that it's yeah. it's happening in the fall. 
Yeah. Well, we all. I think that over the years we've also <laughs> discovered that nobody actually releases horror books in October. So that's true. Yeah, we're probably going to be okay. Um, that guy's also got the woman from Prague. Um, the arcs are now in his possession. So uh, we'll see. I know I said we weren't going to, but uh, <laughs> it's a spy book. He said it's a spy book. It's his shot as a spy book, even though it's the fourth book in his uh, Ash McKenna series. So. And I will I'm, say I'm that, that we, takes... we did cover the first three, and they were relatively unrelated. I mean, they are standalone, readable books. So, yeah. and I'm guessing it takes place in is Prague. It's in Poland, right? Wait, Prague. Where's Prague? God, that's helping you out with this. Hang on, Siri's going to talk me through this. Where's Prague? Oh, it's in the Czech Republic. That was gonna be my yeah. second. What's <laughs> yeah, in Poland? What's a what's a Polish uh, city? <laughs> Just ask ask Siri. No, no, you're gonna help me out on this. <laughs> Come on, Mister Worldly. <laughs> Fuck you. Name a city in Poland. Let me think about that. <laughs> oh, Siri's taking her time on this one. Oh my god, man. This is. <laughs> Warsaw. Um, That's the one I was thinking of. Krakow. Okay. Is, right, yes. Yeah. This is. Um, this is. <laughs> I just wanted to leave that on for our European listeners. <laughs> you know, I can't believe he's asking Siri where, where Prague is or name a city in Poland. <laughs> so. It's all the same to me. Um, either way, yes. That does, sound, that does sound interesting and perhaps. Perhaps we'll do that. So, God, that'll be two Rob Hart books this year if we do that. So, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, can I tell you, so completely unrelated, and this is because we had a conversation about this. Um, you and I had a conversation about this earlier. Um, off the, We were talking about flip phones because there was an ad that came out. What was that flip phone called? <laughs> the Jitterbug. The Jitterbug flip phone. That's what's being advertised <laughs> on my Kindle, which is telling you what the average age group that reads from a Kindle is. It's like 80 to 90. Yeah. Um, a guy, um, how do I word this? I, I was talking to a guy who wanted some help with setting up his flip phone <laughs> to be used as a hotspot, sort of, because he can get free internet from these sites where you just have to see some ads. You, know, you just have to see some ads, but it's free internet. I think so. What he was describing, I think, was dial up over a cell phone to get internet to his laptop so he doesn't have to pay for internet because you just get the internet for free. Who's that kind of guy? Like, why would anyone pay for the internet? So I want you to picture what I'm saying, Rob. This guy has a, a computer. Um, his issue was that he needed his computer to be Bluetooth. Because he got the guys at Radio Shack to convert his flip phone over to Bluetooth. I'm not sure what that means. Like if they just went into Bluetooth and turned it to on. But he several times said that he went ahead and got his phone converted to Bluetooth. And that he he sets this up through a company where he calls them and gets in. So this guy is doing dial-up over a cell phone, a flip phone. And using Bluetooth to get internet because it's free. You just have to see some ads and stuff. But you know, it's it's free. The internet's free. How did you not call the police on this person? This guy is obviously insane. 
I, I'm telling you, it took it was everything I, I could do to to keep my um to to keep like the straight face. Because I was like, I don't know if you can data connect Bluetooth for like internet. I know you can do like data transfers on Bluetooth. Like I could Bluetooth to your phone and send you a photo if we were twenty feet apart or whatever. But he's like, no, no, <laughs> I saw it on YouTube. You could just use a phone, just like this, like this flip phone. I had to get it converted. You know, they converted over to Bluetooth for me over at Radio Shack. Um, so, like any any plan, any plan where a successful part of that plan involves getting the guy at Radio Shack to do something for you, I am highly suspicious of. My understanding of Bluetooth as a technology is that it's like it's a technology of connectivity, like wireless connectivity between devices, not like between like you and the internet. I, yeah, I, I, but he's he's gonna he, so listen to what I'm saying. This is a dial up service. Do you remember you you had dial up at some point, right? Of course I did. He's gonna use a cell phone for dial up internet. So wait, he's calling in. Yes. <laughs> he's calling yes. like a phone number. Yes. <laughs> and he's gonna get internet over that, and then that is gonna be broadcast by Bluetooth to his computer. <laughs> Because now his phone's been converted over to Bluetooth. Oh, my God. I'm just trying to say it the same amount of times he told me. <laughs> that the guy at Radio Shack converted his phone over to Bluetooth. Like, it's like, oh, God. I so wanted Wait, to send him to an Apple store. I kind of get it now. It almost makes sense. Like, so if he calls in, he's using his cell phone as a modem, which, A, I don't think he can do. But let's just follow this, like, mm. weird logic. Once he's got the connection... The Bluetooth is transmitting that internet connection mm-hmm. to his laptop. Yeah, so he's he's turning it into a hotspot, <laughs> but it's a dial-up hotspot, so it's <laughs> kind of like a lukewarm spot. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> what he didn't spend in money, just fucking getting internet connection, he spent in time. And, like, I'm assuming this is an older man, right? Did you say that? You know, not much older than me. I wouldn't put him maybe 50. That's older. That's way older than you. Um, I'm going to be 45. I mean. Oh, God. (laughs) I think you're, like, 42. Uh, The amount of, of like, life he spent probably figuring this out. Or, I don't know, man. Yeah, but he's going to get free. It's free. It's free internet. You just got to look at some ads. He could have bought a Kindle and done the same thing without any kind of extra work. He spent thirty bucks to get a Bluetooth adapter for his. I'm just gonna say uh, it's got, obviously it's got to be a desktop computer because this guy couldn't possibly own a laptop. Um, I picture I picture him having like the CRT monitor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It might not even be color. He actually said at one point, "Yeah, I think <laughs> I can just." get something and stick my my phone to the screen and i'm actually doing this with my hands which makes no sense because no one can see it and then he mimicked flipping open his phone <laughs> till i get internet i mean i almost want to get this guy on the podcast well i don't know i mean i don't know if his dial up strong enough to yeah that's the thing he'd probably have to be in the room with one of us and that's never <laughs> happening because he's so probably... anyway. oh god i am just so livius and i work in similar uh mm-hmm. kind of jobs but i don't get that kind of customers so i can't tell you Listen, how happy I, I don't typically get that kind of customer either <laughs> okay this was this was a very special case this guy um wow. but 
Yeah, so if you if you're that guy who says ah, I'm not really good with computers or whatever, and you laughed even once during this, like you are way ahead of some people. You're, yeah, you're fucking Steve Jobs compared to that guy. Oh my god, man! Yeah, this was just was it Sunday? I think it was Sunday. It was so, Sunday. While you were telling that story, there was like a brief <laughs> moment where I was like, "Is he describing someone who's like part of anonymous? Like he knows things that that like the common person doesn't do. Like he subscribes to that." 2600 magazine do you know what i'm talking about yeah I do. <laughs> no this guy was not like recording the sound of like coins dropping right, right. into a phone and this this is not no it's not he's not, it's not serial killer from yeah, yeah from hackers uh but those people exist man those people exist so the conceptual sharks need to go eat up yeah uh yeah so uh that's awesome I, I I haven't I didn't expect to laugh that much this this episode so I'm happy thank you for that <laughs> I thought I oh should share it with the listeners uh, I was gonna tell you that when the jitterbug ad popped up on my Kindle <laughs> you're like oh internet like you now you're like we can do some janky fucking like that's the he's the equivalent of like you know there's people that go into Starbucks and I know it's not you because of your like lifetime mm-hmm. you know boycott of Starbucks mm-hmm. but there are people that will go in and they'll order like like a medium coffee and like a large cup. And then they'll, and and just like black, you know, so they're paying like the least amount possible for a coffee and they go and they add a bunch of cream and and other stuff to it from like the condiments area. Oh God, people really do that? Yeah. And it's called like, uh, at least back in the day, it was called a ghetto latte. So they're basically Mm -hmm. like creating a latte, but as cheap as possible. Like they don't want to pay the five bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's that guy. Oh my God. Yeah. You're probably right. But you know, it's free internet. You just got to look at some ads. Yeah, and then, hey, I just brought up a fucking perfect point. Why don't you just take your fucking computer to Starbucks and get regular I, internet? I told you, because that CRT is 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 a lot to carry. To I've listen. been in a Panera Bread one time when I lived in Vermont. I was, in, I was at a Panera Bread in um, Amherst, Massachusetts, and there was a fucking guy at a booth at the Panera... With a full-on like desktop computer set up at the table, and he was gaming on it. That's oh, that's so bad. Wait, what is a Bluetooth dial-up <laughs> network? Oh my oh, no. god! Bluetooth done is a means of wirelessly tethering your cell phone to another mobile device, like a laptop, for internet access using your cell phone's data capabilities. So that's not exactly the it's same. Janky right? hotspot is what it is. Well, no, I mean, that's, but, okay, so what they're saying, though, is, is yeah, I, using, I mean, I, I guess if I did that, because Bluetooth transfer rates are pretty good. It would just be not doing Wi-Fi, just using Bluetooth instead of wirelessly connecting to my phone, which I've done. Never for my own computer, oddly enough. I've had to do that work a few times where I've used, like, my data for my phone for a computer. Yeah. Um, but it's a, on, on dial-up, I don't, hmm. Uh, although oddly yeah. enough, here it is. I found an article called "Use Your Cell Phone as a Modem." It's from two thousand and six. <laughs> Maybe that's the article this guy found. <laughs> any rate, um, we have a key, a key alert, a key page alert here at the at the podcast. Uh, Sixteen hundred and thirty three pages. Thanks to Rob for doing the math on that uh, this week. It is uh, February 7th when we're recording this. We're already 1,600 pages in um, for the year, which is, I think, equal to what we read last year. Oh, sorry. It's, it's about 
It feels well, like it's close it. to twenty five percent of what we read last year, <laughs> so. which is pretty terrifying considering it's three books. Yep. So um, that's a lot of reading for us. So we're going to take a break this next week um, and do an interlude. It coincides with Rob uh, being on vacation again, and uh, that's it <laughs> again. Again, it seems like you're always on yeah. vacation. I, yeah, yeah, it's true. I won't uh, deny that. But uh, so next week will be an interlude followed by a book review, and we are not currently announcing what that book is just yet. That's right. Um, so join us um, next week for some fun interlude conversation. And until that time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep using dial up internet on your phone, <laughs> keep converting to Bluetooth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs>